This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Hello and welcome to our ongoing series of programs on the Buddhist path. I hope your week has been happy and fruitful and you were able to practice the mind training commitments we talked about last week. On the path to enlightenment, we're covering the section on bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to benefit all sentient beings. This mind of bodhicitta has two aspects, the wish to benefit all sentient beings and to attain enlightenment to best accomplish that. To develop this mind, we familiarize ourselves with one of two methods of meditation, the six cause and one effect, or exchanging self for others. Those of you who have been following the program will know these two, but if anyone wasn't with us when we went through them and wants to know more, please contact me on Tenzin underscore Chozang at hotmail.com. That's T-E-N-Z-I-N underscore C-H-O-S-A-N-G at hotmail.com. How do we find happiness, or rather peace of mind? These two are quite different, and the Buddha wasn't concerned so much with finding happiness as he was with attaining a state of complete freedom from suffering. Ultimately, what he found was an enduring peace, quite beyond the duality of happiness and unhappiness. However, our worldly concern is happiness. This is quite obvious by the things we pursue and the actions we engage in. We want the happiness of a full stomach, a nice TV set, a fascinating partner, and so on. The temporary satisfaction such things bring is not what the Buddha was after at all and what he found had nothing to do with this kind of happiness. However, we live in a society and with a lot of conditioning that tells us that this satisfaction is the most important thing there is. In fact, in some ways, we are to be persuaded that this type of satisfaction is all there is. That is why we need mind training. What the Buddha discovered and what we are naturally led to believe as happiness are diametrically opposed. And if we have to choose our conditioned mind naturally gravitates to worldly happiness. Realizing this is actually false, we have to change this mindset so that our eventual natural inclination is for the enduring and ultimate peace of nirvana. The way to do this is to engage in mind training or, if you like, mind transformation. The mind training of the Mahayana is based on bodhicitta as a way to change our current self-absorbed attitude which, the Buddha said, was the cause of all our problems, for an attitude that cherishes others. Over the last three or four weeks, we've been going through how to practice this mind training, and last week we went through the 18 commitments that come with mind training. I signed off the program with a mention of the 22 instructions following on from the commitments, and today we're going to have a look at those. But don't tune out if you're not particularly interested in my own mind training and just want to listen to a Buddhist talk. These instructions can be very helpful in our daily life, even if we're not on the Bodhisattva path. We can still follow them just to bring more happiness and less turmoil into our lives. So do please keep listening. But now let's set our motivation for participating in this program as we usually do. As I have explained before, the most important thing that defines whether an action is karmically positive or negative is the motivation. What an action looks like can be deceiving. 
It may appear positive, but with a negative motivation it will not be. Like the actions of a chicken farmer who seems to look after his chickens very well. But his motivation is to kill and eat them, so none of the care he gives them is positive. So if we want this program to reap positive results, we must be sure of a positive motivation. And seeing as we are talking about bodhicitta, let's set a motivation to attain enlightenment so we can be of the greatest benefit to all beings. This is actually the best motivation because its focus is uncountable numbers of living beings. That focus makes the motivation very vast. Therefore, please try to make this your motivation, but if it's too much, at least aim the positive energy from this program to your own liberation from suffering and enlightenment. Thank you. Now continuing with the mind training instructions, the mind training text we are following runs through a 20-line verse that goes like this. It's pretty cryptic, but don't worry, we'll go through and explain it as we did with the commitments in the last program. Do all yogas by one. Perform all suppression of interference by one. At the beginning and the end, these two activities must be done. Endure both, whichever arises. Guard both as more precious than your life. Train in the three difficulties. Cultivate the three main causes. Meditate on the three non-declining attitudes. Possess the three inseparables. Train purely, without bias towards objects. Train with depth and encompass all with cherishing. Always meditate on special cases. Do not depend on other circumstances. At this time, do the main practice. Avoid misinterpreting. Do not be erratic. Train wholeheartedly. Be liberated by two, examination and analysis. Do not overemphasize. Do not get angry. Do not be changeable. And do not wish for gratitude. Let's start from the beginning and go through these instructions. Remember, you don't have to be practicing mind training as such to adopt these as guidelines in your life. They will still help make your life more happy and useful. The first is do all yogas by one. Yogas here means activities, and the one means bodhicitta. This instruction in, is telling us to do all our activities with a bodhicitta motivation. In other words, everything we do is motivated by wanting to attain enlightenment to be of benefit to all others. Of course, this means we have to develop a special mindfulness because our minds are so used to wandering off on their own little journeys that we very easily forget to make any conscious motivation at all. So, with constant mindfulness in everything we do, eating, working, sleeping, socializing, reading, watching TV, just whatever, we motivate that what we are doing is to gain enlightenment to help beings in whatever way we can. In this way, we will constantly be creating merit whatever we do. The second instruction goes, perform all suppression of interference by one. This tells us that whatever hindrances or obstacles we encounter, to meet them with a the mind of bodhicitta. Even if we have to use forceful methods to suppress them, we should still be fo focused on bodhicitta. And also, when we are helping others to solve their problems, bodhicitta is the best motivation to cultivate. 
So if you want to be a white knight charging around, seeing off all the dark forces, ride out with Bodhicitta on your mind. Then the third line reads, At the beginning and the end, these two activities must be done. Well, if you've been following these programs, you could have a good idea what the activities at the beginning and the end are. This line talks about any action we're engaged in, and the activity at the beginning is, of course, motivation, and the activity at the end is dedication. We usually do both in these programs, as our usual listeners will know. The motivation in this mind training is the same as the one we tried to raise at the beginning of today's program, bodhicitta, or the wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings. Similarly with dedication, we dedicate all the positive potential we've created to gaining enlightenment to benefit all sentient beings. We are taught in the Mahayana that dedicating in this way prevents the positive potential from being destroyed by anger and will bring a constant stream of happiness until we reach enlightenment. Now onto the fourth line. It goes, endure both whichever arises. Both here refers to being to both good times and rough times. When we are enjoying ourselves and everything seems to be going our way, we can use our good fortune to create as much positive potential as possible by practicing generosity, making offerings, and helping others in whichever way we can, especially inspiring them to practice and gain freedom from suffering. Then when when things turn bad and nothing seems to go right, it's not good to get all depressed and full of complaints. We can use the mind training, as we mentioned last week, to develop compassion, renunciation, patience and wisdom. Do you remember how we do this? For compassion, we remember that even though we are going through a hard time, others have it much worse than we do. Our suffering makes us realize the intensity of their suffering, so we can take it on and develop great compassion for them and all beings who are suffering in some way or the other. Another way we can use a difficult situation is to remember it's only a symptom of a much greater disease, the disease of samsara. We are entrapped in the tentacles of this disease, and if we really don't want to suffer anymore, we have to give up creating the causes and conditions for samsara to continue. Thus our difficulty leads us to renunciation and practice on the path to liberation. One of the requisites for enlightenment is the development of the perfection of patience. This cannot be practiced until we meet difficult situations. Certainly we can't practice much much patience in situations we really enjoy, now can we? So when things are difficult, we can accept the hardship with patience and be happy that such a time has come to allow us to strengthen this great virtue. Doing this instead of getting all miserable and depressed makes the difficulty much more manageable and also helps us create powerful positive karma. Of course, we experience difficult situations because of karma, so we can also be happy that this karma has arisen now and not at some later time when conditions might be much worse. Now we are exhausting this karma and we won't ever have to go through it again. This also helps in this kind of situation. So whether we experience good fortune or hardship doesn't really matter. With a mind training, we can use both to progress along the path to enlightenment. That is why the instruction says, endure both, whichever arises. It then goes on to say, guard both as more precious than your life. And no, this doesn't mean your eyes, 
It refers to commitments. We might have taken not only the mind training commitments, but also other commitments, like householder one-day vows, bodhicitta vows, and so on. The both here refers to the mind training commitments and those other commitments. And the instructions says we have to keep our commitments pure, even at the cost of our life. This, of course, is difficult to do. I certainly don't know whether I'll be able to surrender my life to keep commitments. But the reasoning is that breaking commitments creates negative karma, and that could have very dire, long-lasting consequences, whereas giving up your life would be comparatively painless and short. The reasoning is sound, but our attachment to life does not have much of a reasoning brain, I fear. Still, many Tibetans have given up their lives for their religion, so I guess if you are committed enough, you can do it. Train in the three difficulties comes next. The three difficulties here are firstly identifying delusions when they arise, secondly using the antidotes to subdue them, and thirdly eventually defeating them completely. Identifying delusions and catching them when they arise needs a strong mindfulness. Usually we are right in the middle of delusion before we are even aware it's there. Take anger for instance. How often have you been able to catch it just as it arises? Most often I find that it's taken over long before I realize what's going on. However, if we practice being constantly on guard and mindful, we can eventually catch something like that as it comes up. Then we have a choice to blast forth or react in a much gentler, friendlier way than getting into a shouting, slanging and property or people-destroying match. Using the antidotes to subdue the delusions will temporarily weaken them, but the antidotes don't have the power to completely eradicate them. If you look at all the delusions, the one that is like the commander is attachment, because attachment is behind every delusion that overtakes the mind. Why, for instance, do we get angry? Because we are attached to ourselves, our friends, our possessions, or our point of view, and so on. When we see some threat to one, of, one or more of these, we get upset. Similarly, it's pretty obvious that attachment to oneself plays a pr- big part in pride and arrogance. Attachment to self leads to all the delusions, so when we finally get rid of attachment, we will be well on the way to putting all the other delusions to rest as well. Of course, we can apply many antidotes to attachment. Thinking of death considering the ugly aspects of the thing we are attached to, remembering the disadvantages of attachment, and so on, and they will quieten the attachment for a while. However, if we finally want to get rid of attachment and all the other delusions, we have to meditate on the nature of reality with a mind of calm abiding. Only when we get experiential understanding of the nature of reality, that is the lack of inherent independent existence of persons and phenomena, will we finally be completely free of the delusions and all suffering? So, the instruction is telling us to employ strong mindfulness to catch the delusions when they arise, apply the temporary antidotes to them to weaken them, and then to develop calm abiding and special insight to finally rid ourselves of them completely. You can see why it calls them the three difficulties, can't you? They are certainly not the easiest activities we can embark on. 
But then the text gives us a clue how we can go about training in the three difficulties. It says, cultivate the three main causes. By causes here, the author of the text means the causes to make our Dharma practice flourish. The first of these is a qualified teacher. We have to find such a teacher and rely on his or her instructions. Then the second cause is to develop a virtuous mind. In other words, we have to turn away from anything that presents harm to ourselves or others and train our minds to be of benefit to others as much as possible. As His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, help wherever you can, but if you can't help, at least don't harm. The third of the causes for a good Dharma practice are good living conditions, for it's pretty difficult to practice the Dharma if you're always wet and cold, or always hungry or sick a lot, and so on. In New Zealand, we're really very fortunate because it's so easy to gather the living conditions for practice. Food and resources are plentiful. The people are generally tolerant and friendly. We have no dangerous animals, reptiles or insects, and it's not too difficult to find adequate shelter. Actually, one very high Buddhist master, Kutitsensha Brambishe, who visited New Zealand a number of times before he passed away in 2006, said that New Zealand has the best conditions for practicing the Dharma in the world, and he picked Nelson as the best in New Zealand. Another Tibetan master, who had many students around the world, decided to eventually settle in Dunedin, because he too found that in terms of Dharma, this country has something special. So while we have these excellent conditions, why don't we use them to the best of our abilities? For we certainly can't say we'll come across them again after we shuffle off our present mortal coil. The text then goes on to instruct, meditate on the three non-declining attitudes. Everything comes in threes in this text, doesn't it? The three non-declining attitudes it talks about here are an abiding faith and respect for your teacher, an enthusiasm for practicing the Dharma, and particularly the mind training, and a strong mindfulness to keep your vows and commitments purely. Basically, it's saying that we have to make sure that these three are not allowed to degenerate. We're still on threes for the next instruction as well. Now, we're told, possess the three inseparables. Now these three refer to body, speech and mind, though we would be in a pretty dire strait if we didn't possess those three, wouldn't we? However, the text in its cryptic way is saying that we must make every action of our body, speech and mind inseparable from virtue. How do we do that? I have said it so often before that I'm sure you know what I'm going to say now. But here goes. Create the best motivation you can. Yep, of course, for an action to be virtuous, it must have a virtuous motivation, no matter what the action looks like. As I said earlier in the program, we can do an action that looks very upright from the outside, but if our motivation is rotten, the action is just pretty tinsel wrapped around a load of manure. And an action can look bad from the outside, but the motivation makes it virtuous. There's the famous story of the Buddha in one of his previous lives before he became enlightened. He was a captain of a ship carrying a large number of traders. One of the traders decided he was going to kill all the others and steal their wares, but the captain of the ship got wind of the plan. He realized he couldn't do anything to stop the rogue trader, so understanding that if the trader followed through on his plan, he would not only cause a lot of harm and suffering to the others, 
but also collect terrible karma for himself, the captain decided he would kill the trader himself and go to hell instead of him. In other words, the captain felt intense compassion not only for the trader's intended victims, but for the trader himself. The captain duly killed the trader, but because his motivation was so pure, didn't suffer any negative karmic effects from it at all. Well, one ending into the story is that the Buddha one day had a headache, and one of his disciples asked him why. He told this story and said the karmic effect of killing the trader was the headache. However, another version of the story states that the Buddha suffered no negative karmic effects at all. Whichever ending is right, the point is that someone seeing the captain killing the trader would have thought it a very heavy negativity indeed. But because of the pure motivation, it was actually not. Similarly, we're encouraged to make the motivation for every one of our actions positive, even though some of our actions may appear not so good. Of course, because the mind training is focused on bodhicitta, that is the best motivation we can develop. Remember that, as bodhicitta is concerned with all sentient beings everywhere, any action motivated by bodhicitta becomes very vast, whereas an action just motivated by happiness in this life although appearing vast, will have very limited effects. A president of a country may implement laws that appear to benefit his people, but if his real intention is to just increase his wealth and reputation, the action will have a very small scope. We now move away from triple this and triple that to an instruction that says, train purely without bias towards the objects. Normally, as we experience the various things in life, we mark them down as pleasant, unpleasant and neutral. Isn't that so? A visit to the dentist is an unpleasant experience, for most of us that is. But sucking on our favorite type of chocolate will undoubtedly give us the impression that we are experiencing something pleasant. This instruction is telling us not to get caught up in such discriminations, but instead try to develop a mind that is equal and unbiased in its view of experiences. One sutra says that when we look, we should just look. When we hear, just hear. When we taste, just taste. And so on for all the sense objects. Although practicing this is difficult, when you try, things appear much sharper and you are able to experience them as they really are, instead of with a mind that is always restlessly discriminating, restlessly searching out the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant. Especially, this instruction tells us to avoid our usual slotting of people into one of the three categories, friend, enemy, and stranger. Bodhicitta, being based on great love and compassion for all sentient beings everywhere, cannot afford to make such discriminations. We always start the meditations on the mind of Bodhicitta with a meditation on equalizing friend, enemy, and stranger for this very reason. How can we say we want to develop Bodhicitta if we say, I will attain enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings except Joe, who's a nasty person I hate. We will then probably exclude Joe's wife and children, mother, father and so on, until we have a long list of people we refuse to help attain enlightenment. This is not bodhicitta at all. And in fact, with this in mind, we, we ourselves will never go anywhere near enlightenment. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is also always emphatic that we shouldn't criticize other religions, and this applies to all other social groups 
institutions, cultures and societies. It's very easy to make facile judgments based on our conditioning without taking into account the conditioning that others have been through. I recently saw a video about a young man who had escaped from the North Korean prison system into which he had been born. He had suffered terribly from hunger, overwork and torture. In fact, it was the constant hunger that eventually persuaded him to try to escape. He and a friend rushed the electrified fence around the prison, and while his friend hadn't made it, he had managed to clamber over, being badly burnt in the process. He eventually made his way to China and then to South Korea, where someone made a video about him and his experiences. One of the really interesting things about him was that he was not at all fascinated by the comparatively good life in South Korea. All his life he had been told what to do and how to think by authorities who held his life and limited well-being in their hands. So when he arrived in South Korea, he found it very difficult to be in a situation where he was expected to make his own decisions about everything. Also, we would think he'd be excited to be in a country so much wealthier than the one he escaped from. However, he was not overwhelmed by it at all. The thing he most enjoyed was being able to fill his stomach whenever he wanted. The rest, cell phones, computers, nightlife and so on, didn't really do much for him. I was intrigued because it showed the great effect conditioning can have on us. Westerners might think that their culture is the greatest because it has all the good things of life and it might induce us to look down on other cultures but we are not taking into account the conditioning others may be much more attuned to. We might find many reasons why another's culture is inferior to ours, but we are just acting out of our own biased conditioning, and in fact those we look down on might be much happier in their situation than in ours. The Tibetans are an extreme example. The communists brag about the wealth and modernity they have brought to Tibet, but in fact, according to all the Tibetans I've spoken to, the people are much more unhappy under the communist rule than the comparative feudal system they lived under before. It hasn't only to do with the oppressive regime that the communists have clamped down on t- Tibet, but also the lack of recognition of the Tibetan way of life and the suppression of the Tibetans' religion and culture that is causing unbounded heartache. It just goes to show how, when we discriminate against societies and groups, we can cause so much trouble and unhappiness. So the text advises us not to allow our minds to discriminate in this way, to approach, but to approach all others with an open mind and respect, even though they may seem very strange to us. The final instruction that we have time for today is the 11th. We're at the halfway point in this list of instructions, so it seems a good point to come to an end. This instruction reads, Train with a depth and encompass all with cherishing. This tells us not to just skim over the mind training in a superficial way, but to take it to heart and practice it with depth. Especially we need to train in cherishing all beings and all situations, seeing them as contributing to our mental transformation, whether they are good or bad. Everything we experience through our senses gives rise to either delusion or virtue. It's entirely up to us which which it is. If we see the dharma in all our experiences, and use them as mind training, we will create virtue. 
But if we continue to relate to our experiences with hatred, attachment and ignorance, we will just continuously add to our and others' stores of negative karma and suffering. It's our choice. But if we're serious about developing bodhicitta, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment to really help all others from their suffering, we have to take on and follow the mind training. We have to clear our minds of the afflictive emotions that cause conflict and ongoing unhappiness and develop real love and compassion for others. Now time is really up and we must go. Thank you for joining us today and I hope it's been of some benefit. We will continue with the mind training, but until then, Terawan Saranai, the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you. Goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.